Bristol Business School and Bristol Law School at UE Bristol bring you the Future Impact podcast series. In this series, we're delving into the topics that you want to discuss, from life-changing research and cutting-edge technology to brand new ways of thinking. We will be calling on UE Bristol academics and real-world practitioners to help us get the answers and share their industry knowledge and insights. So welcome to our live event and thank you so very much for joining us. This is part of a series called the Future Impact Podcasts, where we speak to academic colleagues and practitioners about real issues with real world impact. We use the cross-disciplinary expertise from around UE Bristol to tackle the questions that you want answered and to bring you cutting edge thinking. Today, I'm joined by three colleagues who have contributed essays to a book entitled Life After COVID-19, The Other Side of Crisis. The book's been edited by Martin Parker, and we want to extend our thanks to all colleagues who've contributed to the book and to Martin for being so supportive of us running this live event today. So a few matters of housekeeping. We will hear from our experts first, and then there will be time for a short Q&A at the end of the formal questions. We'll endeavor to answer a few questions on each topic, and you can submit questions throughout the event via the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. Please, if you could only use the chat function for technical problems, or if you have any general comments about the session. And we may also use this for posting any relevant links. So please be aware also that we'll be recording and live streaming this event. So if you don't want your questions featured in this, please, if you could stay anonymous or contact with your questions after the live event. So all that's left for me is to thank Rose Adderley and Tom Peru, who are in the background working their magic for their support in setting up the event. And I'd now like to hand over to Professor Carol Jarvis to begin the introductions. Um, so thanks, Rachel. Um, I'm Carol Jarvis and I'm Professor of um, Knowledge Exchange and Innovation here at UE Bristol. Um, and besides the unleadership work um, we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the panel today, my research interests are all around leadership development, leadership learning, team learning and, and work on entrepreneurial mindset. Thanks, Carol. And Hugo, would you be so kind? Yeah, thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Hugo Gaggiotti. I'm Associate Professor at the Faculty of Business and Law at the University of West of England. I work in the, in the, in the, in the Department of uh, um, uh, business and management, but in particular in the cluster of uh, the human resources, management and employment. And um, my, my research is focused on, on the working conditions of uh, people in, 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 the, in uh, what we call vulnerable contexts, like for example, people who have to move to work abroad or women who are works in, in factories who are uh, located in different countries. And, uh, and in addition to, to what we are going to discuss today on, on leadership, I, 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 I will add maybe some comments of this, how, how, the, how the pandemic has affected this, this, this particular kind of vulnerable cohort of, 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 of people. Hugo, thanks. And Harriet. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Uh, my name's Harriet Shaw. I'm uh, Associate Professor in Organisation Studies, um, also here at the, the Business School in the cluster of organisation studies. Uh, my research interests are around um, workspace and workplace. So I'm interested in the physical working environments that people work in. And I'm interested in the use of visual methods, visual and arts-based methods to explore 
experiences and practices in the workplace. So, yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you. Um, so if we kick off um, with the first question. Um, so we're going to talk to, um, to Carol and Hugo first. So in your book chapter, you introduce the idea of unleadership. Could you please tell us a bit more about the concept of unleadership? Thanks, Rachel. Um, I will do. And I guess before we get started on it, though, um, I think Hugo, Selen and I, who, who wrote the chapter together on leadership, were, were really inspired by um, Captain Sir Tom Moore, who very sadly passed away yesterday um, after raising the best part of £38 million for NHS charities together. And I just thought it might be quite nice um, as a mark of respect to him to, to spend just a few seconds, no more than about 30 seconds, reflecting on something that's made you smile this morning. And if you want to make a note for it or you want to share it in the chat box, that would be great too. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give us 30 seconds to kind of stop and, and reflect a little bit. Okay, great. I can see we're already getting a few a few comments in the in the chat box. So feel free to carry on on posting them anyway. Um, so I guess what I want to say was, like many other ideas and innovations, our, our kind of chapter on leadership, it emerged from the margins of a completely different conversation in the early days of the very first lockdown we had, as Hugo and our wonderful colleague Selen, who can't be with us today and I were researching the development of entrepreneurial mindsets. And what we noticed was that whilst many political leaders and others in senior leadership roles were kind of dithering and delaying, weighing the evidence, centralizing, looking to see in, you know, to seem as though they were in control of things. At a more local level, what we saw was individuals, companies, and communities were actually picking up the leadership mantle and they were using their resourcefulness and whatever resources were actually available to them to take timely, creative and informed action for, for social good. So from that, we identified a, a set of practices that we called unleadership, and it was to describe the spontaneous and uncontrolled actions and initiatives that have really come to the fore under COVID-19. Uh, we described it as unleadership as because whilst their actions were um, leaderly and leaderful, um, unleaders don't generally seek out followers or, and they don't define their acts in relation to the dominant leadership narrative. Um, so we don't see it as an alternative to leadership or even a response to a lack of leadership, but it's an appreciative concept. And the more that it's practiced, the more collaborative agency is uncovered. Um, I don't know, Hugo, if you want to build on that a bit. Yeah, I, 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 I think that it's a, 
Uh, just to add about the spontaneity and coming back maybe to uh, linking your words with with Captain Tom and uh, and so this was really the epitomize what what means and, and leadership to us right so it was not the seek of control not the seek of uh, demonstrating to other ones uh, um, what uh, he was doing you know it was for I don't know himself his friends his family. And uh, this this is the kind of uh, that is extremely difficult to capture with uh, with, with mo most of the of the leadership conceptualization really right. So for example, the other the, the other that we have discussed in the chapter, remember Carol, uh, with with Selen, a lot a lot of discussions about this is about you know these where are the followers, right? The typical you know idea of when 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 leadership is discussed, you know, uh, it's quite not for the sake of followers. So all of the followership theories are very ex extremely difficult to to encapsulate in the in the in when when reflecting when reflecting on our leadership practices. Thank you both. That's a great introduction to um, to the discussion and, and to your chapter. Um, so another question then. What do you mean by the state of exception and how does this relate to COVID-19? I think, Hugo, if we could come to you on that one. So by, by uh, state of exception, so we, we follow here by, the, by using this, the, the concept of state uh, of exception, the, 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 the thoughts of the philosopher Giorgio Agamben, right? And uh, mm, so what our, our point is that uh, in um, following Agamemnon, uh, in normal circumstances, a leader a leader consider organizations to be in a in what Agamemnon refers a state of potential perfection, right? So the, the leaders consider in let's say normal circumstances, not exceptional circumstances, and this is what we call exceptional circumstances, right? Any sort of that divide, you know, is different from the, 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 the what we call the normal path of doing things, right? And the leaders consider that in this kind of state of potential perfection, that is normal, normal circumstances, their responsibility is to exercise control and pursuit, and pursuit basically perfection, right? So normal circumstances the, is to make the things better and better and better, right? So, what, so Agamben has discussed in his in his work what happened in unexpected circumstances, right? So, in exceptional circumstances. So, what the leaders do in not in when they are looking for a state of potential perfection because they can and and they, they can move to the perfectionism because they are everything is normal. But what happens when there are unexpected circumstances? And um, um, Agamben says that in what this happened. Uh, leaders make an interpretation of the state of exceptions that as a threat to their own organizations. And because they, 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 this, they, this state of exceptionalism constitutes basically a menace to permanent, to, to be in permanent imperfection, says Agamben, right? Uh, because, you know, it's so exceptional or any exception 
to their rule or to the normality will, will become a menace to the leaders to seek for this potential perfection that they are permanently seeking in normal circumstances, right? It's a little bit like, you know, <laughs> this kind of circular argument, right? Because, uh, um, and so, Alamed and describes uh, how these menaces are usually characterized as impunities, usually, right, in the socialist culture, some sort of impurities, right? And often it's interesting because they are attributed, for example, to immigrants, to foreigners or others who are considered dangerous, right? So the threat caused by the menaces must, must be quashed, must be quashed at any cost. So the leader must, in 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 any sort of imperfection circumstances, the leader must take control and show strong and decisive leadership, right? And this is what most of us expect from leaders, right? To be on control because there are unexpected circumstances. There is a crisis, for example, right? Uh, he, he or she has to uh, take control and demonstrate the, 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 the capacity of leading, we say, right? Um, uh, indeed, right? Uh, for example, we expect leaders to, to rise to the occasion, recognize threats rapidly, select the correct path to take, you need the public, right? We have this idea, right? Persuade the public and them to follow through government decisions, for example, right? Um, we will only get the full learning about the uh, practices of leadership during the COVID, and in particular the government or the political leaders uh, after after the COVID. And this was our chapter. What imagining what will happen with the leaders after the COVID, right? But what is already emerging, and we have discussed in the chapter, is that the, we need uh, the, the, what is emerging is something new that is independently of this strong control, right? So Captain Moore was not under control of anybody. I know, I, you know, he was not seeking con to make to control anything at all, right? And this is why the, right, uh, we have associated the status exception with the COVID nineteen that is a crisis. Yeah? Hugo, thank you. That's really, really fascinating. And obviously, as you said, it's, it's something that's emerging. So we're, we're learning as, as we're going and, and moving through this kind of time of crisis, I, I guess. Um, so um, perhaps another question then, maybe to Carol this time. What are some of the characteristics of unleaders, if you like? And maybe you could give us some examples. Yes, certainly. Um, I think probably the most important um, or the thing that came to us first, at least around the characteristics of, of unleaders, is what might be called paying it forward. So the unleaders, they, they act in a spirit of compassion from a place of generosity, and they're acting for the social good um, and without any anticipation that they'll benefit from that themselves as a, as a, as a person. Um, and that takes courage. It takes courage to act into the unknown, to act with a clear purpose, but without a grand plan. So they, they, they know why they're doing something, but they don't necessarily have a great plan or idea about how things are gonna unfold. Um, and as part of that, then it means they have to make themselves vulnerable and be willing to admit to not knowing. So it's that kind of thing about living and thriving in the unknown and the, and the unpredictable. Something else we noticed, and I, I kind of alluded to it at the very beginning when I said about you know, 
while politicians were kind of still trying to gather the evidence and decide what on earth they should do. Um, I think unleaders, they catch the wave. They, they have an ability, they, they're taking timely and thoughtful action. And they're acting in the, the here and now on the basis of the informations and the insights that are available to them in, in the moment. So they're not trying to predict the future and that frees them up then to, to take these kinds of, of, of risks. Um, it also means that they can take responsibility without waiting for permission or for somebody to delegate them the authority to do something. So they're, they're, but having said that, once they've acted, if they see somebody else um, is better placed to take their initiative forward, or that they can bring something different to it, then they'll, they'll reach out to those people and they'll work with them. So they kind of got this recognition of when they reach their limits, they're confident in kind of connecting and collaborating with other people. So those are kind of some of the key uh, characteristics that we were, we were thinking about. And I alluded to Captain Sir Tom Moore at the beginning, and he's probably the most well-known example of what we would, um, or his story is what we would call unleadership. Um, so just you know, as a reminder, in the weeks up leading up to his 100th birthday, he decided he set himself a challenge to walk on his Zimmer frame a hundred laps of his garden. And his target was to raise a thousand pounds for NHS charities together because they've been really supportive of him and helped him work through some difficult times. But his story got picked up first of all by the local news and then by the BBC. And um, so it took an unexpected turn and all of a sudden he was kind of on BBC breakfast. Um, and when he got put in the spotlight, he accepted it really gracefully, but with optimism, with humility, um, and didn't seem worried about being seen as vulnerable or failing to reach his goal. Um, and then he came across Michael Ball, um, who said, you know, almost spontaneously, will you record a single with me? And the next thing, somebody who's never sung in his life has got a number one hit and is kind of being willing to take that risk of falling over and people thinking he's completely and utterly doolally um, singing We'll Never Walk Alone. And I think what really stayed with me from his example was when he was congratulated on what he'd achieved on his 100th birthday. I'm, I'm going to read a quote. He said, people keep saying what I've done is remarkable. However, it's actually what you've done for me, which is remarkable. So, you know, in the end, he, he succeeded in raising the best part of £38 million and he inspired a lot of other people to, to take action. But that, you know, he exceeded everything, but he could eat just as equally have only raised £150 and that would have been fine too. Um, so then I suppose there's some examples from more well-known public figures and I've chosen football because the, um, the government were very rude about footballers at the beginning and, and characterised, they're often seen as kind of, you know, uneducated young men you know, who, who perhaps don't know how to spend their money. But 
hot on the heels of Matt Hancock saying something very similar, um, it emerged that Jordan Henderson, the captain of Liverpool Football Club, had been working behind the scenes um, to get all of the club captains together to raise money for NHS charities together. And he'd set up this Players Together initiative. And in fact, he's just been appointed the first NHS um, Charities Together ambassador. And then more recently, you know, probably everybody's seen the story of Marcus Rashford, the Manchester United striker. And when football was suspended and nobody knew what he was doing, he was actually out packing and delivering food parcels. Um, more recently, he's come to public attention for writing to the prime minister, making himself vulnerable by drawing on his own experience um, to highlight the plight of hungry children. And actually, he succeeded in shifting government policy. But his motivation wasn't to say, wow, look at me, I'm Marcus Rashford. His motivation was very much about social good and, and, and changing something. So those are a few of the more well-known characters and stories, but there are literally hundreds, probably thousands, maybe even tens and hundreds of thousands of others that are happening locally and that may be less well-known. Um, and many of those, they admit that when they, when they started out, when they embarked on their action, they didn't have any idea of what they could achieve, how they do it, what resources they'd tap into. And I think one of my favourite stories is about a 13-year-old schoolboy called Joseph who, who used his Christmas present of a 3D printer to print visors. And, and he said, um, it's like having a caterpillar in your hand which grows into a beautiful butterfly and flies away. So this kind of sense of not trying to hold on to things and keep them under your control, but just letting them go where, where they want to go and where they can do the most good. And there's a fashion designer called um, BB English. So she posted a, a message on her company's Instagram account asking if she could make masks for anyone and got absolutely inundated with responses. So she taught herself to make certified masks in sterile environments. Um, so she didn't kind of try and predict what was going to happen. She followed, she focused instead on the quality of the gesture that she was making. And, you know, there have been companies who've done the same thing. Again, the one example um, is the Royal Mint and their engineers decided to um, produce visors after searching online to see what medical equipment could they might be able to create on their site. Um, so within seven, seven hours of doing that, and with no previous experience, they designed a visor, a visor sorry, and within 48 hours, they'd actually um, got that approved for mass manufacture. So kind of, you know, really making use of resources that weren't being used for any other purposes. And I think that's a, a really great example of how our leaders um, may act to help save lives without actually stopping to think that their act may well be beyond their skills uh, or their knowledge or their resources. So because they're not escaping from trying, or because they're escaping from trying to predict the future, then they can act courageously and self-confidently into that space. And when they bring in others and they connect and they collaborate confidently with them, then they begin to act 
um, in a community to make meaningful contributions. So for an example of this is an amateur rugby club called Blackbrook, who delivered food to homes of NHS staff. Um, and they actually worked with what they described as lads from rival clubs and football clubs to, to demonstrate how rugby can bring people together for a good cause. So yeah, they, they put aside all those kind of traditional rivalries and just thought, what is it that we need to do to have the biggest impact? I mean, I could go on for hours, but we've got a limited time. So yeah. maybe that's a good place to stop. Carol, thank you. I think what's so nice is that the um, examples that you shared come from such a broad spectrum of life and that, you know, people from such different backgrounds um, you've highlighted there. And also how maybe, maybe times of crisis help us to see some of these qualities in people that you wouldn't maybe otherwise see. But um, thank you. I think I've just got one final question for, for Carol and Hugo maybe this time, um, if you don't mind. So looking to the future, what might individuals and organisations learn from unleadership to influence their everyday workplace practices? And I think Hugo, would you mind touching on that? Yeah, uh, I, I would say, um... Uh, looking, looking for the future, for example, not to be afraid of losing control, right? And, uh, and, and delegate. So our, our feeling when analyzing all of the data, when publishing for our research for, for our chapter and, 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 and other, other paper that we, we are working on that, is that the, uh, the, you know, the, the people are very, very smart, extremely sophisticated. We have examples of, you know, small business, intermediate business, uh, family business, you know, people, you know, with a capacity of, uh, of uh, reinventing, recreating, always helping others, you know. So uh, sometimes it's better not, not to touch, not to intervene, you know, just to observe and learn from what other ones are doing and try to facilitate, really, to put the conditions to help not to impose your ideas coming from a top down of what uh, you know you or whatever as a leader uh, um, things that has to has to do right again following this idea that you know because it's an exceptional circumstances what is expected from a, from a leader to do is to take everything under control and decide sometimes it's exactly what is better for everybody is exactly the opposite right liberate the people facilitate delegate is under this. The, 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 there are some suggestions in the in the in the in the theory and the concept of leaders, of leadership, of what is called uh, dispersed leadership, right? Not 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 to monopolize the the initiatives, right? And not to seek, you know. So in the future, we we imagine that you know. Uh, the people will be much more sophisticated. They will learn. We we imagine that organizations will learn from uh, from 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 the pandemic, from the crisis. Then we imagine a, a, a life after the COVID uh, with a huge richness in terms of unleadership practices. Uh, I, I, we are not quite sure how many leaders will learn about that really but you know we we it will our impression is that it's much more visible everybody knows you know uh, Rachel you know we uh, it's, it's not it's not, you don't need to have strong arguments to convince the people about the the, uh, the you know the the practices of, of Captain Tom uh, you don't need to to uh, to um, have sophisticated arguments to sell him as a strong leader because he wasn't. 
But anyway, but no, we 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 now we everybody knows his contribution, right? And it was not because of his leadership, uh, whatever, right? Practice was well, something different. That in our case, I think that the concept of unleadership helps to to illuminate or to make it less invisible than before. Thanks, Hugo. I know, Carol, if you want to add something to 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 Rachel Rachel's question. Yeah, I think you've summed it up really, really well. Hugo, and I think in an organisational context, I mean, some of the things that resonated with me was the importance of keeping purpose at the centre of everything we do. And a lot of organisations talk about their purpose, but then somehow or another they they kind of get forgotten about and sidelined. So putting them front and centre. Um, I think the concept of social good in an organisational context is about being inclusive and being an inclusive leader. So fostering a climate where everyone can thrive and, and recognising the, the development of others as a, as a core leadership responsibility. Um, I think we need to think differently about how we plan. So not abandoning planning, but not expecting everything to go according to plan and blaming others then, which is what usually happens when they don't. Um, so instead, you know, when we see things are shifting away from our plan, then that taking timely and thoughtful action to adapt as, as that new information emerges. Um, I think organisations could do, many organisations could do more to foster and reward behaviours and practices that are made for the, for the common good. Um, rather than the individual's benefit. So, for example, recognising the typically invisible glue work that makes the organisation tick, um, putting it again, you know, valuing it and reflecting it in, in the way they reward people for doing their work. So maybe in summary, what I'd say is we should be perhaps looking to develop leaders who contribute to making our workplaces more appreciative, compassionate, and human places to be. And I think if we do that, the profits will follow too. Thanks, Carol, or uh, well, both of you for, for your thoughts and, and kind of talking us, us through what you've written in your in your chapter. Um, there's a link in the chat if anyone is interested in the book, there's a link there um, uh, to get more information. And if anyone's got questions for Carol and Hugo that we'll ask at the end, if you could pop them in the Q&A um, box, that would be fab. Um, Harriet, I'd love to come to you now. Um, so are you happy to, as a first stop, to give us a brief overview of your book chapter? Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you very much. Um, so this chapter that I've written, which I must uh, say is a co-authored piece. Um, so my co-author um, is brilliant, uh, the Michael Isaac who is a reader in management at the University of Roehampton. Um, so we wrote this chapter together and we share quite similar research interests um, around flexible work, remote working, workspaces and places, um, the impact on everyday life, um, an interest in boundaries uh, between work and home life. So uh, Mikael and I kind of came together really because we wanted to reflect on how this crisis essentially forced so many people, so many of us to set up workspaces at home pretty much overnight um, and wanted to think about that in relation to how that's fundamentally shifted 
our understanding and an awareness of what it's like to work at home, sort of where we work and what it's like to create a workspace in our own homes. So so we really wanted to spend some time reflecting on that. Um, Specifically in the chapter, we look at that particular issue is working at home during a crisis through three themes. One is exploring um, an idea of visibility and vulnerability, um, which is essentially talking about Zoom and the many, many Teams meetings that we're all involved in and thinking about how that's impacted uh, our lives. We also reflect on liminal spaces, which I think we might talk about in a in a bit, but um, liminal spaces being the, the sort of corners of our homes, how have they become unexpectedly useful? Um, we think about um, how organisations have attempted to control and monitor staff whilst working at home um, and we share some some good bad and ugly stories in the chapter of how that's been done well and not so well um, so the chapter really is sort of food for thought on okay what's happening now but maybe what we can learn learn from that in the future thanks Harriet there certainly were some yeah interesting examples in the, in the chapter but um, we'll, you may or may not touch on those in, in a moment um, so the so talk about maybe the first or the whole concept you say in the chapter that the home is contested so could you explain a little bit about what you mean by this yes so, um, this is the, so this is the title of the chapter the contested home essentially it's um the, a contested space is one that describes a space that has multiple meanings um in which often competing interests or expectations play out or where you'll find um kind of conflicting or competing uses of space Um, so in the home so obviously we're we're talking about that in in relation to the home our homes and our domestic spaces are really typically private places they are private sanctuary type spaces Um, and throughout the pandemic in this way of working for many workers on Zoom and Teams and and so on and so forth they've really been opened up as as public spaces that have been shared with other people which I think we'll come on to talk about in a bit but that's essentially an example of how it is a contested space another way of thinking about it is, is is kind of thinking perhaps you know those that are listening thinking about what competing interests and what conflicting uses do you do do we currently see and experience in our homes so we can list you know on work calls we're on zoom and team meetings we might need to do concentrated work we've got homeschooling going on our homes have become gyms they've become places of worship Um, you've got the usual domestic activities that happen in the home and all of these are happening at the same time with that different family members um, in house shares with housemates, whatever it might be. And so if you imagine all of those sorts of things happening in a kitchen, for example, you know, there's this sort of I imagine it all sort of knocking into each other. You know, this this idea that uh, there are these conflicting uses and it becomes then a contested space um, that there is an expectation that I might use it in one way. My husband might use it in another. There's an expectation that, you know, I often think at the moment it must be terribly confusing for a, a child, um, you know, being homeschooled that, you know, the the usual expectation of a particular space is to have fun, play, eat, 
uh, be with family, but all of a sudden that space is now expected to be used as um, a classroom and for learning and to be serious and to sit down and not move. Um, and so uh, when we talk about these sorts of spatial complexities, I think what's important to take out of that is is a, a sort of questions around um, boundary making, for example. So, so the complexities there in a contested space around the boundaries of private, public uh, work and home life, and how how that might conflict. Um, you know, in a lot of my research, territory comes up as a really important theme a lot of the time in in usual office workspaces, for example, and, and we are inherently territorial. And so how does that work when you've got these competing and conflicting uses in our homes? How do we seek out territories? How can we, we might have trouble defining then those territories because of these conflicting uses. Um, and of course, that has a knock on effect on on our sense of identity, you know, a sense of who we are um, in those spaces and, and being able to define who we are and Rachel I know you're similar to me in homeschooling and you know we're, we're sitting there being sort of a uh, teacher we're mother we're professional you know in and and you've got those those multiple identities knocking against each other in this in this space that where you have these conflicting uses so it just sort of we we, we use that as a title just to kind of raise the questions and uh, to help people um, navigate through the, the complex feelings and emotions and experiences that, that that we're all facing in different sorts of ways. Thanks Harriet, you're absolutely right, I think it will resonate with different people in different ways but absolutely some of the things you've touched on definitely definitely do with me. <laughs> yeah so just um, thinking in a, a little bit more detail about some of the things you talk about, some of the examples you use, so you, you talk about work-based video calls in the chapter and so would you be happy to say a bit more about what some of the benefits are, but also some of the challenges of calls like this um, have been over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it's part of, of a lot of people's lives now that we're we're on we're on it in video and, and, and on the screen a lot of the time. And I think so it kind of goes back to this idea of, of remembering uh, the, the home is usually a private space. It's a domestic space where we we kind of get to choose who comes in our homes, and uh, we have yeah we have slightly more control perhaps over that. And throughout the pandemic, in this new way of working for many people, and I'm aware it's not the same for everybody, but for a large um, part of the population, we've we've suddenly become quite visible and arguably quite vulnerable because we are now seen in our homes um, and we sort of we can see in um, and a lot of the people that we um, we talked to for the for the chapter I mean we we spoke to we got stories from people that we're currently working with on research projects colleagues previous participants of other research projects so we kind of drew on on a whole variety of, of people and their experiences um, in the current climate and um, you know, lot, there were lots of people that reflected, you know, especially at the beginning saying, yeah, I think everyone's kind of busy looking at the backgrounds of their colleagues rather than actually listening to what's going on necessarily in the meeting. They want to kind of see where they live, where they work. Um, and uh, I don't know whether anyone uh, listening in or has been on the uh, the Room Rater Twitter account. <laughs> Where, which is pretty brutal to be fair, um, where you've got uh, people ranking out of 10 the um, 
the aesthetic quality, I guess, of, of the Richard Famous or, or people who are on TV, you know, on, on BBC Breakfast or what have you, and, and looking at the colour of their walls or what they've got on their shelves. Um, there's been quite a lot in the media about that in a sort of jovial sort of way. But I think there's something really important to kind of take out of that because a lot of the people that we talked to for the chapter um, talked about really enjoying seeing this everydayness, this sort of sense of reality um, people, people's reality right now and it's that sort of um, backdrop of the the ordinary and the mundane almost um, that people felt said something about who they were and a lot of people talked you know this is like well this is the real me this is this is the reality um, but also that vulnerability seemed to have um, a sense of social value um, in in relationships there was a real um, you know, Carol touched on it there right at the end about um, making workplaces just more hu human, humane. Um, and, and this humanizes, you know, we, we get to see people's um, ordinary, mundane parts of their life. And, and that for a lot of people humanized um, and shifted relationships. And so it, there was a sense from, from people that this had broken down barriers in, in what would otherwise perhaps be more formal relationships in the workplace um, and, in, and improved relationships. You know, they kind of like to see and hear what's going on in people's lives. And, and that has, has opened up new conversations about children and cats and where you live and I don't know, whatever it might be. And so, so there's something, there's some real social value in, in being let in to this sort of space. Obviously, double-edged sword um, in the sense that not everyone has experienced it like that. And obviously, this sort of visibility and vulnerability will impact people in different sorts of ways, I think. Um, you know, we need to remember we've invited people in that uh, they might be strangers, um, they might be people... Uh, that yeah that we don't know people that we might not like very much in in our own organizations or others and so you know people have started to use digital backdrops for different reasons there are ways around some of these some of these sort of um this compromise of privacy um but for for some people this sort of place of retreat and place of privacy you know has been compromised it's been breached in some way and it was felt it was felt in a in a more negative way. This this sense of exposure in the home, um, and of course, it does impact uh, as I, as I just sort of suggested power relations. You know, it shifts relationships being let in, um, and it shifts power relations in some way. If we think about the sort of hierarchical relationships or pe people in positions of power that we're used to, there's almost like a um, legitimateness to those sorts of positions in the office or in in our, in our workplace but all of a sudden you have that person with the backdrop of their bedroom or you know they've got a cat on their shoulder or something like that you know it 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 does it does compromise that in some way or shift that in some way um one of the examples that we use in the book is 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 from my own daughter um who's five um who was commenting on the background of her teacher who was who was doing a pre-recorded homeschool thing um and she's saying oh you know that's so so's kitchen and oh that's a pretty kitchen that's a pretty color oh she's got you know and and there's something again it's this double-edged sword there's something really sort of some sort of social value in that you know there was a um 
would that enrich a relationship you know would that sort of um make you feel closer make you feel more connected there's something human about that versus the formal figure that that teacher is to my daughter um how has that shifted so it's sort of looking at both sides and then thinking post-covid you know what has been seen and what has been heard how has that been shared how have we been let into people's home and what is remembered you know and 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 it will be interesting to think about yeah how that might impact relationships going forward in a workplace yeah it's interesting that obviously for some it's been so positive and so beneficial and then in another situation not so much and you're right you can't sort of unsee things can you and you can't no, <laughs> no. um fab thanks harriet and something you've touched on uh, just a little previously was the liminal spaces. So, so you've mentioned that. Could you tell us a little bit more about what they are and why you think they're important in the context of working at home? Yeah, a good question. So liminal spaces, uh, short answer, uh, the physical liminal spaces are generally seen as spaces in between. So limin meaning sort of uh, threshold. Um, they're spaces in between. They're often transitory sorts of spaces that on the threshold, um, sort of on our peripheral vision, if you like, of more dominant sorts of spaces. So you'll often find um, in the literature that we define things like toilets and corridors and cupboards and stairwells and corners and that kind of thing as liminal spaces. In my previous research on workspaces, liminal spaces has come up a fair bit as being really important for workers for different reasons. Predominantly liminal spaces in in normal working environments um, are, are useful spaces to escape a sense of visibility, to find privacy, respite, a moment of quiet reflection, for creating those sense of, of territories. These are really important, particularly for workers who work in very shared, fluid, open spaces. Liminal spaces suddenly become quite important in terms of finding a territory that's yours, just even if it's momentary, you know, a little a little corner of a stairwell or you know a particular step that you you sit on outside or whatever it might be these are really important spaces at work and just from our conversations really for the chapter it sort of emerged um that working at home sort of cast some light onto the liminal spaces of the home because obviously we have them at home we have corridors and hallways and stairwells and and, and these sorts of things at home and they they suddenly, for some, became unexpectedly useful, particularly in relation to the sort of practice of self-care and some sense of um, finding a quiet moment, if you like. Um, so, for example, we, we talk about um, an entrepreneur that we work with um, in the chapter who, who used the roof of her house to go and escape from family and technology and being on show and all this kind of thing and um students that we spoke to you know were were in in shared houses you know rather than being in their room all the time or in the shared space of a living room we're using literally a threshold space of the of the door of the front door front doorstep to just just have a cup of tea and have five minutes so they was they're still being used in quite similar ways to how we found in organizational life um, and the other thing we found, um, which is really my sort of not so secret interest, which is uh, a lot of the research I've done in the past has been with hairdressers working in, in different hair salons across the UK. And um, so I follow a lot of hairdressers on Instagram and uh, looking at how they were practicing their work. Obviously, they were shut um, and they wanted to connect with with an audience and with with them. Um, uh, their clients and so it was really interesting to see how how 
like what they were doing, but also where they were doing it. And um, we give some examples of, you know, the head, really, really well-known hairdresser in London in a, in a walk-in wardrobe, presumably in his house, uh, with his wife showing you how to do a quick updo. Um, there was a Welsh hairdresser who was in his hallway at, with, at the hall mirror with his son showing how to use clippers, you know. Another hairdresser in a toilet showing you how to do a home toning kit, you know. And so they were they were using these liminal spaces, which I thought was interesting anyway. But we sort of reflect on, you know, that's an interesting response to this sense of visibility, um, and and how sort of going back to this idea of of, of visibility and, and vulnerability, perhaps that's their answer of 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 not compromising their their private homes you know they've found these little corners these little pockets to connect still work but maintain some sense of um privacy so so i think it's it, it, it's an interesting spatial question to think about how these in-between spaces are really important um just as they are in the office they are important at home um and and i think it's interesting how how we still try and find moments of privacy, even in our homes. I think that's quite interesting, given the current climate and the lockdown and the situation we're in, people are still seeking out privacy and a sense of territory, even in their own homes. Um, so I think that sort of emphasises how important that is to us as humans. Mm, thank you, Harriet. It's that I've certainly been more mindful, I think, of where before I might have um I might have been sat on my front doorstep, but I think now I do find it sort of as a place of solace rather than yeah, just exactly. my front doorstep. Um, I'm just aware that we're cutting it a little bit fine. So I've just got one quick question for you, Harriet, by way of sort of wrap up, if you like, sure. um, for your section. But thinking about the future, lots of organisations are now thinking about more permanent working from home setups for staff. What do you think organisations should be thinking about if more and more staff are going to be working from home in the future? Well, it's a really good question. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think this is this is going to be a, a big one for organisations. And I think now's the time to be thinking about it because this whole situation has been really quite exposing, I think, for leadership teams and organisations um, and how much they have considered that there is a human on the end of the working from home situation um, and and the real understanding of the complexities and these really subjective experiences that people have. And as I said earlier, you know, we, we had some great examples of some great practice um, in the book, you know, with our various conversations where, you know, people, organisations were setting up, you know, catch up days where no new emails or no new work was set. And they had catch up days, working flexibly, showing a sense of empathy in the emails and, and correspondence, you know, real sense of moved thinking from, you know, working from home, almost dismissed pre-COVID and now this has really shifted people's thinking and terrible examples really awful examples of 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 issues still around presenteeism and and a lack of trust and no sensitivity to the situation and you know there's one organization asking asking employees to take selfies every few hours and send them into work so this you know this real concern of you know where are you and what are you doing as opposed to like your actual work and your output so there's a real there was some really great practice and some really not great practice. So I think the first thing organisations could do is look back first and think about and reflect on how and where they saw good practice 
um, throughout this situation. And, and this goes back to, to Hugo and, and Carol's uh, chapter and, and, and thinking about, you know, where did you see social good? You know, where did you see on leadership um, during this period of time? Where was trust? Where was empathy? Where was creating a culture of support? Um, so I think that would be the first thing to think about because that can help with positive change. I think the second thing to think about is is now is I think it, I think now is a perfect time for organisations to do their own research and actually talk to their employees, talk to their staff. You know, this is a collective experience. So let's talk about how you've experienced it. Um, so, it, you know, we've, we've moved on now, you know, working from home isn't an answer to work life balance and commuting and well, it attends to some of those things, but you know we are so much. You know we're, we're further down the line now. So to so do your research, I'd say. Um, the third thing I'd say is, and this is something that has really come out of a lot of conversations I've had about what people are missing, is the the role of liminal space at work. As I was suggesting earlier, was is quite important for people. Certainly for for knocking into colleagues and having ad hoc conversations and having spontaneous sort of inspiration and creativity certainly in my previous research that's happened so these corridor conversations as we'd call them or bumping into somebody in the toilet um or at the water cooler or what have you they've gone you know so I would be thinking if we are going to be in this possibly in this hybrid situation you know office spaces and we do a bit of working at home or, or lots of other things in between you know where are our ad hoc conversations you know where where is the ability to do that and you know we now have very efficient meetings on team and zoom and what have you I think you know we kind of get down to it straight away um, but what do we miss there we kind of miss that chit chat stuff um, it's quite difficult to replicate online so so how do we do that um, and if it's back in the office and this is sort of my wariness of going back into the office and people expecting you know business as usual people are going to need to talk and people are going to need to be allowed to have a chat in the corridor and it not be seen as not work you know it's it's not a case of um oh gossiping and chit chat and all, you know that's actually a really important part of our social cultural part of our workplace so so i I'd, I'd be thinking about those sorts of informal ad hoc conversations and how important they are and where they occur the last thing i'd say is that as this experience moves forward we're still in it it's going to need some sort of regular ongoing analysis you know you can't solve work-life balance you can't set work working from home rather you can't just have set it up it's not a case of find a space and have you got the right chair and you know there's so much more to it so we will need to adapt organizations will need to adapt to people's experiences their needs their boundary management and that's all going to be an ongoing thing that there isn't an answer to that to implement something that needs something that is ongoing so from previous research you know on on physical workspaces I, I, I draw on some of that and say that organizations need to think about a role for someone some people a collection of people who are somehow curators or guardians 
of working from home culture and behavior. They are somehow people who help with that regular ongoing analysis, that regular um, adaptation to people's needs so that working from home is a, is a is always part of the conversation in an organization rather than something to be solved. But so yeah, they would be my four top tips. So yeah, the, I mean, there's some really good questions coming through and Harriet, that was fantastic, thank you. So question that you ask in the chat, and uh, do you think the idea of a leadership gets recognized enough to, uh, by typical senior management? The short answer I would say, and Carol, you know, please feel free to intervene, definitely no. I would say that is uh, even contested by managers and leaders, right? So it's, it's, it's a sort at some point counterintuitive, right? To be an unleader. Uh, everything is in place to demand you to be a leader and a strong leader and have everything under control. So and the sec second question is, are any examples of leaders op uh, who operated in state of exceptions in the past? Yes, for example, dictators, but also leaders and managers in charge of, um, you know, again, exceptional organizational circumstances, like takeovers, acquisitions, mergers, this, that was usually sold as strategic changes. Uh, you know, oh, we have to change everything, right? And it's, again, considered a sort of, uh, of a state of exception. So anyone appointed to be in charge in what is considered an exceptional circumstances. There was another question from Cat Branch. I think that there is a direct relationship between tenacity and innovation and autonomy, facilitative leadership. I agree. I say that I, I add here that I will add in the case of unleadership, this, the relation is also with humility, generosity, non-competitive, a non-competitive stand. This is what we, we discovered with, with, with Selen and Carol, right? The no seek for leadership. We have eight questions here. I don't know if, uh, if to whom they were, probably, right? Uh, the, the next one was, will there be any, after COVID, will there be any small businesses left? My feeling is that there will be much more businesses, small businesses, right? Not left, but I, but this is, a, again, who has, who can predict, you know? I think that this, uh, and leadership and more, let's say, fragmented practices of understanding or experiencing capitalism in the post-COVID world, will be much more like, you know, a territory of small businesses. I don't know, uh, but I, maybe it will be different, right? Different kind of businesses, more than small or big. Then there is a very question, I think it's for Harry. What do you think of hot desking when we go back to the office? More and more talk of this happening, and as you have mentioned, we will lose our sense of identity at work. Um, I, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of hot desking, as many people will know. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah, it's going to be a tricky one, I think, hot desking, because I um, it, it, it's been so popular in the sense of looking at um, the the efficient um, financial use of of workspace, um, which is really why it was why it was intended um, from a lot of my research uh, it doesn't work well with many employees um, and and whoever asked the question is entirely right to link it back to territory and, and a sense of identity because um, in all the work I've done in all sorts of workplaces um, there is a, a sense of wanting to create a sense of identity and actually that's really important in how we connect with the organization and how we connect with work um, so to 
to remove that and to make spaces so sterile we we find many uh for many knowledge workers certainly in workspaces that are, um, are created now they they seem like such sterile sorts of spaces where there isn't an opportunity to do that you know the idea of clear desk policy blows my mind because it's just not appropriate on a human um social cultural level um and and doesn't sit well with many people i've, I've spoken to so um I wonder, you know, I wonder about um, going back to the office and, and hot desking and uh, just this idea of, of cleanliness post post COVID. You know, I wonder what our experiences of, of that will be. You know, sort of sharing. You know, I wonder whether it might go the other way. You know, that we do go back to having more of our own spaces that we are responsible for and we can we can have our stuff on it um i think that and again this is part of the research i think organizations should be looking into is you know what working practices have people really really enjoyed um at home you know i mean you know have, having flowers and a scented candle and you know create creating our workspaces at home um however brief or temporary or a bit homemade um actually that that, that might be really important and so what can we take back to the office and what can we learn and what do we miss from the office and therefore what does the office um what's the purpose of the office and I think maybe that's that's the bigger question is you know rather than are we going to go back to what we had before it's actually a sort of broader more umbrella question of well what our office is going to be for um you know do we do we need desks there you know if we're going to really push our thinking around this what 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 sort of work do we do um what sort of work would we want to do at home and what's best done at home what sort of work will be done in the office um and and are desk spaces needed I don't know there are lots of questions to ask around that one um but certainly it, it does impact on people's sense of identity and connection with work and so I've never particularly thought they were a great idea thanks Harriet um, thank you all. I'm aware that we are slightly over on time, so I think I think we may we may call it a day there. But um, if anyone's have has any questions that they were really desperate to have answered and we haven't got round to, um, please do feel free to send them um, to to my team via email, which is uh, bbec bbec at uwe.ac.uk. And as I'm speaking, Rose has amazingly and fantastically put that in the chat so if anyone has got any questions that they would like to follow up with Carol Hugo um, or Harriet please do drop them to us and we will get them answered for you. Thank you so much uh, to Rose and Tom in in the background the ether, who've been doing an amazing job of uh, moderating questions and everything else um, and finally my sincerest thanks to Carol, Harriet and Hugo for joining us today um, and for talking us through their wonderful book chapters. Um, the book again the link is in in the chat um, and that we can send further details to anybody else who's interested in having those. So thank you all uh, very, very much. Um, thank you for your time and, and thank you for your fantastic questions as well. Thank you for being part of our Future Impact podcast series. We hope you enjoyed listening and have taken something away from this episode. If you'd like to learn more about any of the topics discussed or have an idea or a topic to include in future episodes, please do email us for further information using bbec at uwe.ac.uk